John Stott has a book about preaching that is um, used in a lot of Bible colleges and seminaries. We read it in the doctoral program, and it's titled Between Two Worlds. That's the title of this book on preaching. It's a topic in, in training preachers to, to bridge the two realities that, that, that we come in contact with every Sunday, and even at a moment like this. There's the, there's the contemporary world which, which we live in, that people live in, the, the day-to-day, nine-to-five um, reality of, of life. And then there's the world of the biblical text. We, we read parables, we, we go back 2,000 years and watch Jesus walk on, on, on a road from Jericho up to Jerusalem, or, or we go back even further than that and hear about, hear about the Exodus. And, and we're very familiar with this world. We, we live it, we breathe it, we, we understand it. Um, then there, there is that world which we read and, and we, we have the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and teachers to, to equip us, but, but there is a bridge that has to be built. You know, context is, is king. And you have to understand both of these worlds. And I, the first, the world that we live in, requires little interpretation. Um, it's the air that we all breathe. People live here now, and yet the Bible, some of the circumstances are not as familiar to us. So the preacher must build a bridge the, the two worlds, while not confusing the two, all the while maintaining the absolute authority and transcendence of, the, of the, the Word of God. I really think that's a, that's a good way to describe the position that, that we find ourselves in this morning, that you may feel coming here to church as a Christian, listening to the Word of God, singing the songs of God, all the while from, from Friday up to this point being blasted at every turn from CNN to Fox News to the radio to wherever you were reading or listening the contemporary world in which you live in, which, which has this, this ruling that, that has come down that is against the Scriptures, it's anti-Christ, it's anti-God, it's anti-human being. And yet, and yet you're here this morning and you have these, these two realities in these two worlds. You have the firm conviction of the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus is your, your, your King and your Master, and yet you are also here. And, and so how do you, how do you deal with, with those things? The contemporary world and, and then the other world. I think that's exactly what Al Mohler was saying in, in, that I quoted in the email I sent you. In one sense, everything has changed. In another sense, nothing has changed. Everything has changed in that, that as a nation, we have now written sin into, in, into our laws. Homosexuality has always been here. Same-sex marriage has, has always been here, as they like to call it. Homosexuals have always gotten together. But, but something altogether different has happened. We have, we have now written it into our laws. We have invited the judgment of God upon our nation in a way never before. I mean, this is, this is unparalleled, not just in American history, but in human history. Homosexuality goes all the way back to the beginning of, of, the, of time, right after the fall. 
But even in pagan cultures, while homosexuality was, was there, even in the times of, of the Roman culture and the Corinthians, that happened, but it was never written into law like, like this has, has been done. Also, in, in everything that's changed, the state is now set against the church in a way that we have never experienced as, as Christians or, or citizens before. Think of the progression. Think of this as a progression. Just like Nathan, I'm sure, will cover tonight with, with Romans 1. In the beginning, church led the state. The church influenced our founding and our constitution and our laws. And then came along this whole idea of separation of church and state. The church was leading the state, and now there's this idea of separation of church and state, and now the state is set against the church. That's the new reality of what just took place. One said this is like the Roe v. Wade of, of marriage. And in a way, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's greater than Roe v. Wade and, and not as great as Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is, is about the murder of, of innocent babies. Um, and yet, that was permissible. And so, in a sense, marriage is, is not on the same category as, as murder. Both of them are very serious. But Roe v. Wade didn't write into our laws this rebellion against God's created order. So, in that sense, it's different. Um, I saved the file for this sermon the day sin was institutionalized in my country. That title in of itself is just is just breathtaking to me. In one sense, everything has changed. In another sense, nothing has changed. God's Word hasn't changed. Christ is still the sin-conquering Savior who can save anyone to the uttermost, who's coming again in clouds of glory and will come as the Lion of the, of the tribe of Judah. In one sense, nothing has changed. No human court can redefine marriage. And the verdict does absolutely nothing to change God's definition of His ordained reality of marriage. Nothing has changed in this, that like last Sunday, you and I as Christians will still follow Christ, we'll still look to His unchanging Word. Marriage will still be one man and, and one woman. John MacArthur sent an open letter to, to TMS graduates and then he said, God was not defeated in this ruling and every marriage will still be judged according to biblical grounds on the last day. Nothing will prevail against him, Proverbs 21.30, and nothing will thwart the advance of his kingdom, Daniel 4.35. While nothing has changed and everything has changed, we still have to think through that with these... Two worlds. So I want you to open your Bible to John 18. I tag-teamed on the wedding yesterday. Someone preached the charge. It was Randy Lindsay's uncle, Lori's brother, and then I came and did the vows. So I'm tag-teaming again today with Pastor Nathan. Setting the context of thinking rightly as a human being, as, as feeling like you feel, as something horrible has happened, and yet at the same time, having this firm, rooted conviction in the fact that this world is not my home and Christ is King. And, and then how do you bring those two things together as you move forward and how you think and how you act? 
And how do you raise your children? And what do you do in the life in, in which, you, in which you, you live? And I think that you can see in John 18, 28 through 38, the tension between the two worlds in this passage. It's an encounter between Jesus and Pilate. Here's the Creator who is robed in human flesh standing before human authority, which has real power and yet no power whatsoever. Let's read. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. Here is this, this hall in which human authority will stand over the Creator. It was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What is the accusation that you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? And Pilate said, You take him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation... And the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Listen to what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus said, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now, I hope as you're listening, you're, you're, you're feeling these two worlds, this human authority, and in the words of Jesus, there's the kingdom of God where King Jesus reigns, and then there is this human court and human authority, and even more so, you've got the religious authority there with the Jews and then Pilate. And there's the Creator standing before human authority who has real power and yet no power. His real power is seen in the Jews bringing him to Jesus to be judged. You see a trial, you see an accusation, you see talk of judgment, and ultimately you see a death penalty. You see cross. Real authority was exercised. And yet he also has no power, as you can see from the words of Jesus in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world then my servants would fight. He states it even plainer. Look at chapter 19, verse 10. Watch Pilate wrestle through what you're wrestling through this morning. Watch Pilate do this as an unbeliever, only seeing the earthly realm and not the heavenly kingdom. Look at what Pilate says. 
Jesus is standing before this human authority and He will not answer Pilate. And Pilate said to him, Are you not answering? Do you not know I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate is perplexed. He has authority, but can't figure out why in one sense Jesus seems unaffected by it. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what what I have the ability to do? And what did Pilate do? He exercised that authority and Jesus went to the cross. On the other side, Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you. And Jesus said, no man took my life. I willingly laid it down. And if I lay it down, I'll raise it up again. Pilate says, are you a king? Do you have an earthly authority? Are you challenging my authority? And Jesus says, yes, I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world or else you would be obliterated. Is what he means by my servants would fight. And then he goes on to say, I came into the world to do something greater than remove your earthly authority. <laughs> Pilate in chapter 19, verse 10, verse 10 says, Do you not understand my authority? And Jesus says, You would have none unless I gave it to you. And Jesus was responding by standing before Pilate as a citizen of the earth, but he was doing so while fulfilling his heavenly mission as a subject of heaven that transcends everything. And Pilate was perplexed because he saw one world, and you will be perplexed if you only see one world. Pilate saw his world, his authority, his power to kill or make alive. And we find ourselves as Christians in the same position as Jesus, but we should not be perplexed like Pilate. So, here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to talk about these two vantage points. How you assess earthly authorities under God's dominion. And then I'm going to apply it more specifically to our case. I'm going to leave you with some closing thoughts that I left you with in the email, and then Nathan's going to come back tonight and fill in some additional details. We need to think about both, and we need to keep both in the proper realm. The first one is, we are citizens of earth. I am just like you. I am a red-blooded American. My grandfather fought in World War II. Um, I still cry whenever I see the images of 9-11. I still want to join the Marine Corps whenever I see the, the um, previews or now the post-views run of American Sniper. There's something in me that feels the same way you feel. There's a patriotism there. I am a citizen of earth. The, my feet, my blood is, is rooted in that as a human being. That's part of, my, part of who I am. It's there. As a citizen of the United States of America, living with a representative form of government ruled by a set of laws and not men, you are in the same situation as a citizen of earth. We're in a country where law is king, not the king is law. And from that standpoint, the ruling that was handed down was a tremendous breach of justice, an unfathomable constitutional malpractice. And from 
our form of government, courts and presidents and governors, leaders of Congress, do not rule. They do not have the right to interpret the laws based on their understanding or cultural pressure or intent. They are bound by what preachers are bound by every week, as Rick Holland reminded me and everyone else this past week. They're bound by hermeneutics. You know that word that the seminarians throw around? It's rules of interpretation. They're charged to get their own personal feelings and even congregational feelings, or in this case, the feelings of the, of the culture out of the way and interpret laws based upon the text of the Constitution or the law. And just because you're president, Republican or Democrat, you do not have the right under our Constitution to fundamentally change anything. You are to faithfully execute the laws of our land made by the representatives made by the representatives of the people. That's why there's an oath of office that happens. You are not king, you are a representative. And you must execute that office as the people desire. And you can hear that in the four dissenting Supreme Court justices. Chief Justice Roberts, rightly appalled, begins his dissent. Today, five lawyers have ordered every state to change their definition of marriage. Five lawyers have closed the debate and enacted their own vision of marriage rather than allowing the debate and voting to continue in the states. Just who do we think we are, Roberts asked. There will be someone greater than Chief Justice Roberts who will ask that question of the Supreme Court justices, just who did you think that you were? whenever you made that statement. Justice Scalia, even more. Quote, It is not of special importance to me what the law says about marriage. It is of overwhelming importance, however, who it is that rules me. Today's decree says that my ruler and the ruler of 320, American, 320 million Americans coast to coast is the majority of nine lawyers on the Supreme Court. The practice of constitutional revision by an unelected committee of nine, always accompanied, as it is today, by extravagant praise of liberty, robs the people of the most important liberty they asserted in the Declaration of Independence and won in the Revolution in 1776, the freedom to govern themselves. End quote. As an American, I'm outraged. I have to control myself at the breach of trust, it will have wide-sweeping consequences. And from that vantage point, I see my duty as a citizen to do all I can lawfully to correct the unconscionable travesty. I feel in my soul, as Peter did, when the Romans came to take away Jesus, when he reached for his sword. But I also hear the words of Jesus. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 million legions of angels? There it is. There's the two worlds again. And Jesus is not telling me to do nothing. He's not telling me that my outrage is wrong. He's not telling me to, to, to not do everything lawfully within my power as a citizen to correct this unconscionable travesty. He's telling me to do that. But he's reminding me that I cannot win an earthly battle 
without thinking and reacting in a heavenly manner. I'm no less outraged by the injustice, but I'm called to think and act in two realms. I'm reminded that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And I'm also reminded that greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. Subjects of earth. You also have to think through, we're not only citizens of earth, but we're subjects of heaven. To think through this as a citizen living in a representative form of government ruled by a set of laws. Yes, God has ordained authorities and governments. And yes, there are different forms of governments. And yes, if I was in Rome, and yes, if I was in China under a constitutional, under a communist government, I wouldn't be like I am today. But I'm not. By God's providence, I live here. I'm in this form of government, and I have responsibilities in this form of government. But as I do, I cannot lose track of Number two, that I am a subject of, of heaven. I'm a subject of heaven as a Christ follower under the kingdom ruled by the words of the Creator. As a Christ follower, I'm an American, but I am a Christian American under the kingship of Christ. And from that vantage point, I must see what is unfolding before me as well. Let me go back to the words of the, of the Supreme Court justices to show you this tension, these two worlds. While a citizen living under representation, I praise Justice Scalia's constitutional interpretation. I say, Amen! That is absolutely right. As a Christian, though, I could not disagree more with some of his statements. When he says, It is not of special importance to me what the law says about marriage, I'm going, Are you kidding me? What do you mean you couldn't care? Of course you should care who rules over you and 320 million Americans, but you should care more what God says about marriage, Justice Scalia. Or the words of Justice John Roberts who said, if you're among the many Americans of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means celebrate today's decision. Don't celebrate it more and weep because God has given you what you desired and what you desire will lead you to perdition and deepen your, your pain. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of commitment to a partner, celebrate the availability of new benefits, but don't celebrate the Constitution. Amen to that. It has nothing to do with it. Amen to that. But all of that before there is bunk. It's junk. It has nothing to do with God's Word. As a Christian, you should say, what are you talking about? You see the divide. There are two vantage points. There are two worlds. And we look at the same picture, but it's like having a, a, a pair of, of glasses. I... I love, I've always loved treasure hunts and archaeology and otherwise, and I just, you know, you see those shows where there'll be a painting that's, that's really valuable, and then they've got this technology where they can actually look behind the painting and see that there's another painting back there that's even more valuable. I just think that's so cool. I didn't even know it was there for a thousand years or whatever it was. As Christians, you have the you have the same set of goggles. You have the ability to see that. The world only sees the painting there. Only sees what happens on earth. Only sees what the culture is saying. Only sees it from a constitutional standpoint. You have the ability to see it from a constitutional standpoint and also see what's behind it. 
the kingdom. Don't think this is easy. Why do you think that the, the, uh, the scribes and the, the lawyers, when they were trying to trip up Jesus, hold up the Roman coin and say, whose image is on the coin? Should we pay taxes, Jewish rabbi, to the Roman oppressors? They think they have the Gordian knot. They think they have something that Jesus can't solve. They can't solve. And Jesus gives that statement, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and render unto God that which is God's. And the text says that the people were amazed and put into silence. Why? Well, it wasn't just because he turned a good phrase. He gave an answer to something that these two worlds, he bridged them for people. That's very, very difficult to do. Wouldn't you like for Jesus to have gone on and described what it means in every specific instance to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and unto God that which is God's? I would have. <laughs> but he didn't. So we're here today with two worlds, trying to bridge them and trying to make sense out of them. And in one sense, the ruling wasn't surprising. Were you surprised by the ruling? I wasn't surprised. The two lesbians and other people there on the Supreme Court that were all unbelievers, as far as I can tell, would rule in that direction. That doesn't surprise me at all. And yet I'm deeply grieved for what it will mean for children and, and for even the people that are bound by the sin. We should not expect people who are on earth to act like citizens of heaven any more than we should expect Pilate to understand why Jesus wasn't concerned about his authority. But as Christians, we should expect that we think on both planes and then act correctly. As Christians, above anyone else, we should be thinking and speaking the clearest on these matters. As John Piper reminded everyone, because we have the Creator's words and we understand the issue, which is depravity and the sin in the heart, and we have the answer to that, and we have the Word of God, we should be thinking and speaking more clearly about these issues than anyone else. So there are the two realms. Let me help you apply it to our specific situation. To think and act based upon these two realities. The first thing that I, that I set up as a grid is how this matters to life on earth for the church and our neighbors. Jesus, God, divided the Ten Commandments in, in our commands and responsibilities to God and responsibilities to man. Yes, there's a heavenly kingdom. Yes, this world's not our home. Yes, this, this whole place is, is going up in flames one day. You find the oddness the irony of Satan that the very symbol of homosexuality is a rainbow, the bow that God set in the clouds that said His judgment will never come upon the earth again in water because of the wickedness of human beings. But Peter tells us that there is a judgment coming not by water but by fire where this whole world will melt in fervent heat. That's true, but I'm still here. I have responsibilities to man. I can't save a single one of you. I can't open your heart. I can't make you believe the truth. But that doesn't mean I don't proclaim the truth to you and plead with you and weep that you would come to Christ. It doesn't mean that you sit back and do nothing. So I have to think through this. How does this matter to life on earth for the church and neighbors? And from that standpoint, the ruling's horrible. This is not a matter like raising your taxes, gun control, or a candidate that you don't like. This is, on a, this is a matter 
that attacks the Creator. This is a matter that you don't have an option to not take a position on. You can be a Republican or a Democrat. You can think that you ought to have gun control or not have gun control. I have personal opinions on that. I share that with you on a regular basis. But you don't have the right not to take a position on this, and you don't have a right as a Christian not to speak as God speaks on the matter. Period. That's not me. That's not Timberlake Baptist Church. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've come under the words of the Creator. You follow Jesus. This is His authority meted out. But then you also have to understand that what does Jesus say that we're to do about those matters? It's horrible in the sense that I said that you've institutionalized sin by writing it into the law. you formalized rebellion toward the Creator. And before today... Homosexuality was practiced by individuals. And as I wrote to you in the email, it's one thing to have iniquity in the heart, all men do. It's another thing to, to cultivate those desires and transgress, step over a law individually. It's still another thing altogether to write in the national law a precise declaration of rebellion toward God and encourage the violation of others. Romans 1 speaks to this. They give hearty praise to those who practice such things. That's exactly what the nation, the rulers, as they would like to call themselves, have done. And in doing so, as I said, invited the judgment of God. Nathan will probably talk more about this tonight, but judgment really is in three forms. There's the judgment that is to come, where all men will stand before God and give an account. And because of that, we plead, knowing our God is a consuming fire, we plead with human beings to repent and trust in Jesus because we know what that day will be like when you stand before Almighty God and you will not be able to speak because of His holiness. You will not argue with God on that day. You will not lay out a list of your good works. You will fall on your face and say, Jesus is Lord. Whatever judgment comes is worthy. There's that judgment. There is God's intermittent judgment. And God is so merciful. Would you not have already struck our country down? I would have if I was God. (laughs) Would you not have already struck you down if you were God? I would have. As Joe Hutchinson used to say, right from a lightning bolt. There's that judgment. How does God judge? When does He judge? Sometimes He does, sometimes He doesn't. In that way. An immediate type of of judgment that you can see. Oh, you know, we have to be careful. That was the judgment of God of the hurricane, as Pat Roberts said, on on New Orleans because of the sin. What about all the Christians that died there? Was a judgment upon them? You'd be careful about that. But God does judge in that way. So there's the end judgment. There's the intermittent judgment where God chooses to move in a specific way. And then there is the judgment of sin itself. The greatest judgment that God could bring here on earth is no judgment at all. He gives you exactly what you want. And in that sense, we are already judged. We get what we want. Statistics don't mean a whole lot, but 60% of our nation, polled, agree with the Supreme Court ruling. President Obama has been elected twice in our country by our nation. Now you can say cheated and all the conspiracy theories and whatever else, and I can have opinions and you can. But the bottom line is he was elected. 
So there's more than our thinking out there in the world. And that is judgment in and of itself. It will change things in the way I don't think we can grasp yet. And you must not remain silent and you must choose. Moeller said, we cannot join the moral revolution that stands in direct opposition to what we believe the Creator has designed and given and intended for us. We cannot be silent and we cannot fail to contend for marriage as a union between one man and one woman. And as you will hear Nathan say tonight, it's not just about a union between one man and one woman, it's about God. And he will explain very specifically why it's about God and how it's about God. And why this is not just a matter of, of whether you put you know, two guys on top of a cake or whether it's something else. There's a lot of stuff about waging cultural war or not waging cultural war. And I understand what people are saying there, but you're already in a cultural war, whether you want to be or not. The, the question is, how do you wage it? You, you know, they declared, the world, the culture declared war on Jesus 2,000 years ago, and because of that, you, you're in a cultural war, whether you want to be or not. That's not the question. The question is, how do you wage it? Denny Burt, was very helpful when he said, talking about this, this first one, how it applies to matters on earth. He said, it's time for evangelicals to take heed and be wise. He said, among evangelicals there is a naive belief that if we're only winsome enough, kind enough, compassionate enough, the culture would welcome us with open arms. But now our love expressed in the fullness of a gospel that identifies homosexual conduct as sin but then provides eternal hope through justification and sanctification is hate. Christians who have not suffered for their faith often romanticize persecution. They imagine themselves willingly uh, losing their jobs, giving up their liberty, even giving their lives for standing up for the gospel. Yet when the moment comes, at least here in the United States, they often find that they simply cannot abide being called hateful. They can't even stand under the persecution of being called a bigot. It creates desperate panic response. And they say, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm not like those people. I'm not like the whoever, religious right. And thus, at the end of the day, a church that descends from apostles who withstood beatings finds itself unable to withstand tweetings. Social scorn is worse than the lash. And this is the era of sexual liberty, the marriage of hedonism to meaning, and the establishment of a new civic religion, the black-robed priesthood has spoken, will the church bow before their new masters? End quote. Burke said, here's the bottom line. You know this. Preached it to you. No amount of niceness or social justice advocating or human traffic opposition or listening to the right bands or wearing the right clothes, a poverty relief of reading N.T. Wright or whatever cool Christian stuff you can align with will remove the reproach of Christ from you if you choose to follow His teaching on sexuality or anything else. You're on a fool's errand if you try. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for His sake, you will find it. Better to have Jesus and His reproaches than to not have Him at all. 
So what will happen on the earth? I don't know. I would say um, God could bring another reformation. God could swing the pendulum back in the other direction. It also could get much worse. I think that you would be hard-pressed to not think that there will be... This is not the end, right? The decision, as Mueller said, is clear, present, and inevitable. Our Christian school, accreditation, tax credits, Liberty University, anything else that you can imagine, the way that it happens right now, that you cannot, you cannot bid on a government contract unless you sign the... Uh, anti-discrimination pledge that's there, which includes same-sex uh, you know, marriage and transgender and, and the like. It's a logical conclusion that that will happen. I think if you want to know what it's like, we've already been tested with the little girl situation a year and a half ago. That's what it's going to be like on a regular basis, and that's going to increase, and that's what it will be like for Christians in the culture. And the Lord has given us the gracious privilege of leading the way in some of that and being tested to figure out whether we'll stand. And praise God, by His grace, we did. We all so know Jesus reigns, and our ultimate salvation is not our culture. And His Word is true, and we will follow Him. So let me give you the second one, how this matters for heaven. How does this matter for lives for, for heaven? Both ours, where we're going to live in heaven, and others who we want to see go to heaven. How do we be a faithful witness? And the lost, how do they get a faithful witness? I told you in the email just... I've just been on an emotional roller coaster at the same time with my firm featly planted. I'm not undone in any way, but my heart breaks. Um, my heart breaks because of that little situations like that little girl who's been devoured by the unbelieving world. My heart breaks for children and others that are going to be raised with something that I didn't have, even being in an unbelieving family, where there was a husband and wife, a mommy and a daddy, and how confusing and difficult that will be for, for a child born and shaped in iniquity, living in a fallen world. My heart hurts for people in bondage to sin that will have an easier time remaining chained because of the decision. Piper said, Christians, more clearly than others, can see the tidal wave of pain that is on the way. Sin carries in it its own misery. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Romans 1.27 And on top of the self, sin, self-destructing power comes eventually the wrath of God. The final wrath. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Future. And Christians know what is coming, not only because we see it in the Bible, but because we have tasted the sorrowful fruit of our own sins. We do not escape the truth that we reap what we sow. 
our marriages, our children, our churches, our institutions. They're all troubled because of our sins. The difference is we weep over our sins. We don't celebrate them. We don't institutionalize them. We turn to Jesus for forgiveness and help. We cry to Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And in our best moments, we weep for the world and for our own nation. In the days of Ezekiel, God put a mark of hope on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all of the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. That should be a response of Christians to what has happened. And while I grieve that way, I also find a firmness under my feet rooted in the promises of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for sinners. Hallelujah. Homosexual sinners and heterosexual sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like you. And for those who have forsaken God's path, He is extremely merciful. Piper again, for those who have forsaken God's path of sexual fulfillment and walked into homosexual intercourse, homosexual extramarital fornication, heterosexual or adultery, Jesus offers astonishing mercy. What is that mercy? Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Praise God, the Gospel is and still is and always will be the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. Is sin, drug addiction, drunkenness, adultery, immorality, homosexuality, is that more than just the Pastor Brody counseling version of, of stop it? What was that guy's name? Was it Bob Newhart? You seen that? You know? What? Stop it! Is it more than that? Of course it is. Because you're, you, you, you must be born again. You, you, you have, you're born with, a, with, with iniquity. Your nature is corrupt. You can't correct it. You're unable to do anything about it. But that doesn't abrogate you from the responsibilities that are there. Yes, desires from that nature are there, and they're cultivated. And yes, choices are eventually made. But it's more than just that. It's... If it's not more than that, then what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 means nothing. Because Nicodemus was trying to reform himself from the outside in. And Jesus said, no. You must be born again. You must be born from above. There must be a spiritual transformation, regeneration. There, God must transform your heart or you have no hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. And beyond that, you have no hope of bearing anything but fruit that is from the flesh. That which of the Spirit is of the Spirit. That which is of the flesh is flesh. Flesh begets flesh. Spirit begets spirit. The Spirit must transform you. God must change you. Is homosexuality more than just telling someone, stop it? Yes, it is. Clearly involves choices, but it's in nature and desires and affections. But is it changeable? Yes, it is. How do we know that? have 2,000-year-old evidence, 1 Corinthians 6, that people can be free from that sin 
Such were some of you, past tense. Effeminates and homosexuals included in that list. But you've been washed. You've been justified. And just like a heterosexual fornicator which still may be tempted by lust but can turn from it, his life is no longer marked by sin, so the same can happen for any manifestation of sin, homosexual included. So in the firmness of hope, Rest assured of the following. I heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. We're going to sing that in closing. Bear the news to every land. Climb the mountains. Cross the waves. Onward tis the Lord's command. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Do not be deceived. Do not wring your hands and think that anyone escapes the all-seeing, all-knowing, perfect judging eye of God. God is not mocked. Whatever man, a nation, or a group of people sow, they will also reap. And part of this is that reaping. Also know that the light of the gospel will shine brighter and the salt of regenerate life will be saltier than ever before. Your Christian witness, just being who you are, your marriage, being what it's supposed to be, will be brighter and saltier than it has ever been before. And you will have opportunity to be used by Christ in a way like you never have. The church will have opportunities like it never has. Allowing sin to progress is a judgment of God, and that's what this is. And then in the end, I think you rest in Second Peter. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Second Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to rescue His people, and He will. And the Lord knows how to reserve the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let me pray with you. They're getting our song ready. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Do do you know that? Is a reality? You've heard it before. You've probably seen it on on an underpass, painted in graffiti. You've probably heard it sung. Did He save you? Have you turned, have you repented of your rebellion toward God and embraced the wonderful, free and full grace of the saving work of Jesus? Has He stood in your place as a substitute? Are your sins forgiven? If not, turn to Him. Repent. Believe. Trust Christ. Jesus saves. Father, as we come before You this morning as believers, 
you have helped me greatly and helped my heart respond properly with indignation, with grief, and yet with a firm rooting in the gospel. You have reminded me I do not know the future. It's how it's going to unfold with specific details on the earth, but I, but I know the end and I know exactly what I'm to do. I'm to be a Christ follower. I'm to trust Your Word. I'm to preach the Gospel and we're to be Your people here. And I thank You for that. I thank You for the ability to proclaim this truth. Father, may You preserve that ability. Father, help us to be found faithful. Help us not to swing to either side of the pendulum where we say we do nothing because God's in control. And help us not to feel like we do everything and that you're not in control. Help us to think through the lens of these two worlds that whenever we do that and whenever we live, they would see Christ and whenever they hear His Word, the people would be astonished and be silent just like they were when Jesus said, Render unto Caesar and render unto God. Help us, Lord, to be found faithful in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.